Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your host, and we come to you every Friday to discuss, among other things, the contents of our weekly wrap-up post, Another Week Ends, which is sort of like our Christian Cosmopolitan's grace-infused guide to the contents of the interwebs as we see them for the week. In just a few moments, I'll be joined by the usual suspects to discuss the contents of Another Week Ends. But first, I had the distinct privilege this week of sitting down and talking with Krista Tippett. She's the host of NPR's wildly popular interview show, On Being, and the author most recently of Becoming Wise, an inquiry into the mystery and art of living. I give you Krista Tippett. On the Mockingcast for the first time. Uh, And we're really, it's a real privilege to have you on. Krista Tippett. Krista, hi. Hi. (laughs) I'm glad to be here. So uh, there's a lot I want to talk to you about. I loved your book and I want to ask you about it and a little bit of like, just in general, your story, because I'm sure a lot of your listeners probably don't have a sense for the full picture. Mm. Uh, You Mm. know, I'm sure there's people that haven't read your stuff, which is just deplorable if they haven't. But uh, (laughs) (laughs) but first, I just want to ask you totally geeky, personal questions that I'm really curious about. (laughs) That's okay. All right. Shoot. Okay. (laughs) Who do you think is the best interviewer next to yourself, of course, in media? In public media? Yeah. Well, it could be, it it could be a podcast too. If there's a a, a podcast, you know that, yeah. Who do you think is the best? You know, I just, I never really think that way about anything. I just, I, I think there's so many different varieties of good, right? So there's some people better, better. I mean, I, I actually think Terry Gross's interviews of artists and musicians are great. I'm, you know, I have more mixed feelings about other, other kinds of subjects, but I think, you know, when she's doing that and I mean, I don't know, I'm, I would just have to, I would do, I would have a big long list. I, I think sometimes Scott Simon, and he's not a big podcaster, but I think sometimes he's the one who, I, when I was thinking just early, early on about getting into public radio, he's the one who, it sounds like he's leaning across the table and really with someone and really enjoying what they have to say and so drawing out the best of them. Those are the ones that come to mind. I mean, obviously, Ira Glass does a particular thing um, better than anyone else, right? But it is a very particular thing. I love how you said when I was thinking about getting into public radio, like, what else were you thinking about doing? Well, I had no, I was, I did not have kind of a life plan of heading into public radio. I, cause I had been a, I had been a print journalist, um, but I had really moved away from journalism actually to go to divinity school. And when I, when I was in divinity school, I, I didn't have a sense that this is something I would move back towards. But then I, I got out of that. I had become a person who loved radio as much in, in the UK as here. As a kid too, or like, as no, a no, you know, well, when I was growing up, I mean, public radio wasn't really there in where I, where I grew up in, in a small town in Oklahoma. I mean, it wasn't a force in the same way it is in general now. There was like local radio, the local radio station, which had everything from a blow by blow of election night to top 10 <laughs> hits for the day. I liked radio. It was a, it was a presence, but it was really in the UK where, where they have Radio 4, which is radio about ideas, radio drama that I, that personally I started to love radio. But it was only when I was actually just asking the question, 
why can't we talk about religion in public with some intelligence, including some emotional intelligence, and and this and the same kind of sophistication that we would that we would offer if we were talking about economics or politics or the arts, and it was when I was asking that question that I I I felt like public radio was a place that tried hardest to do that with those other subjects, and and so more as a public radio listener than as a person who considers myself to be a radio professional, I started gravitating towards that idea. Do you ever listen to Howard Stern? I don't listen to Howard Stern, but honestly, I have recently felt like I should. Do you listen to Howard Stern? Uh, I've been a devotee since high, since high school, and he is the best, I think, next to you, of course. Uh, I am, No, I am really ready to... I, I've heard, I have... What I've been reading and hearing lately tells me that I, would, I, 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 I should listen. To yeah, that's actually been on my list, so thanks for reminding me. You're welcome. I'm glad as a fan, I could, you know, anything I could do for on being. I, want, I just wanted to ask about your own journey for a second. Like, I think I've observed adult faith comes in three forms. Hmm. One is evolution, right? Like it, it, somebody, you know, maybe their parents are Presbyterians and they become Episcopalians and they don't believe all the same things, right. but, but they've tweaked the model, but they see a lot of family resemblance. The, the other is conversion, I mean, sometimes people, you know, go from no faith, you know, to becoming dev- devotees to a tradition or switch traditions. And then I think there's a third category, which I, I feel like you might be in, but not to ramrod you into my topology, but <laughs> which would be adult faith is revolution. Like, mm. like you have to kind of almost say a, a strong no <laughs> so that you can say yes again. Mm. Uh, it, mm. Like, is that like, does that resonate at all? Yeah, I like that. I I, I want to think about it. I I like it a lot. I I'm also I also really I love that you use the word evolution, and, and I I also love uh, really enjoy using that word in the context of faith because it's just one of these words that often is used as a like a like an enemy, you know. Because I I really do believe that that faith in in any life that even somebody well as you said even if somebody doesn't change a tradition like even if somebody is planted for their whole lives in the same tradition. Because they are growing and changing and aging and evolving as a human being, the content even of steadfast beliefs is 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 evolving too. So I guess I've I've used I've thought about that word in the context of my journey, but I yeah, what the revolution word I like because because I for me there's been I guess the way I do this is a real paradigm shift in every way from the way, you know, my grandfather, the Southern Baptist preacher did it. But where I might resist the revolution idea a little bit is that I still think I I come back to some of those core truths. It's not like they've all gone out the window for me. It's just that I, from a very different place, can now approach them appreciatively. Hey, maybe the revolution thing is more like political. I think maybe like you know the American Revolution, and yet yeah. we're still so British. You know, okay. there's a sense in which you know our republic right. is. You know, we could we could never disentangle ourselves from that tradition. Yeah, but, but we're a different. We're a more abrupt instantiation or development. Of yeah, it, maybe that's fun. So you just mentioned your grandfather. Can, can you say a little bit about him? Yes, you know he had a second grade education, and he had a wonderful mind and. You know, I I have a couple of things that I that I've retrieved or that my mother passed on to me. You know, his Bible that he preached from, and I have this first sermon that he preached, and it's just you know, it's it's typed out, but then it's full of notes and additions and more thinking. 
so I I you know I never I never use I I think yes in some ways my grandfather was a natural intellectual but but because he hadn't been invited or to, to use his mind to bring his mind fully to this it, it sat very uncomfortably alongside his orthodoxy and so there's a way in which I feel like uh, and it took me years to to see this but there's a way in which I think I'm kind of delving the way I'm delving intellectually, you know, for him, right? Because he couldn't do it. He, he, didn't, he didn't have permission to do it, and he was afraid of, of it. That's beautiful. <laughs> when you kind of came of age, you went into college, you went to Brown, right? Mm-hmm. And did JFK Jr. live in your, I thought you referenced that in your book. Like, yeah, he lived upstairs in my freshman dorm. When you first saw him, were you like, I got a shot? I mean, this is legit. Yeah, it was just kind of bizarre because I'd lived in the smallest possible, you know, a small town the way a small town before the internet. <laughs> you know, so there it really was a contained space. And um even going to Brown, I I hardly knew what I was doing. Um and then it was it was like having the whole world, having history just be three dimensional in a way that was a little bit shocking. And then of course, of course it just turned out he was just a person <laughs> and he was just kind of a uh you know, a person who had all kinds of flaws and eccentricities. One of those uh, flaws was not bad hair though. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> or, we agree. <laughs> or, or being homely. I mean, like I mean, come on. No. No, no but no, but I I did pretty quickly because you, you the you know, freshman dormitory experience, you get to know people, right? And so I pretty quickly also saw um, how hard his life had been, and you know how privileged it was for sure, but also how hard it had been in ways that that were so different from the way my life had been hard, but but every bit as poignant and in some ways you know unbearable. Wait, when you left Brown, you went to Europe, right? Yeah, and you spent some time in East Germany. I mean, which I mean, you have you you have an experience that's not possible anymore, so, right? A, yeah. a country that has literally vanished. Can you say a little bit about your experience in in Germany? Well, see, I think that there was something in the experience of going to Brown and you know living in that dormitory with John Kennedy and just just being exposed to a whole new universe of people and possibility that that made me kind of fearless and in a way kind of seek out this bizarre other planet which was which was uh, behind the Iron Curtain. I mean, East Germany was the place I had I had an opportunity to go to, and it was it was an amazing experience because because it was as you say it was a it was a place founded on a completely different worldview, economic and political and social vision. Vision. It was really a great social experiment. I mean, by great I mean vast. And actually, there was a lot of idealism in its roots, which had gone terribly wrong. But you know, it's an amazing thing to have all of your all of the suppositions that you've had about how the world works be turned upside down in that way to really truly experience a different reality. It's it's hard to even it's in some ways it's and especially when I go to Berlin now it's almost hard to believe that it's real. Like in my in my memory it's also becoming this fictional thing. I had a professor in seminary um, who's Colombian and he said he he was at one of the early sort of um, East-West Christian dialogues. Mm. And he said that, you know, the, the first question all the European, you know, Western Europeans and Americans had was, how can you survive as Christians yeah. under the challenge of communism? And he said, they, they asked the same thing. How can you guys right. survive 
Christianly, in light of, of, of capitalism's excesses and its draining. And you, can, you talk about this in your book, which for the sake of your publicist, we should say it is Becoming Wise, an Inquiry into the Mystery and Art of Living, of which I have the deluxe edition on my Kindle. I almost oh, said excellent. Becoming Wise deluxe, and I was like, wait, that sounds like I'm making like a Happy Meal special. I'm Becoming Wise, an Inquiry into the Mystery and Art of Living. But in it, I mean, you talk about an appreciation for, like, you have all these people uh, that, that have all these resources in West Berlin, and, and, and yet, you know, there was something about the artful way of living you saw, right, in, in, in the East Berliners? Yeah, well, there's something very distracting and disorienting for human beings about, you know, as we say, having it all, which is, you know, which is what we have in these Western capitalist democracies. It's not, it's very important, and I, I catch myself on this, not to romanticize what it was like to be in the other position. And really, when I mean having it all, it's not, it's not just material. I mean, there were vast material differences. But, 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 you know, and, and not being free is also too simple a way to say it. Like, it, what was excruciating about living in that world was not having choices, you know. I mean, really mundane choices, in addition to the choice to, to pull out your passport and travel to another country. Not, not really having dreams, like, not having such a sense of how closed in the world and your possibilities were. It was so painful for human beings. But it, it, you know, it, it was truly an existential crisis. You know, what I saw is that in that space where nothing was handed to people, in fact, so much was taken away, they still could create beauty and poetry and intimacy, you know, companionship. Yeah, I mean, the theological world there that I, I got to know a little bit was so intense, right? I mean, you know, nothing was taken for granted. And, and there was this agency people had that was quite beautiful when they, when they were not destroyed by, by the cir circumstances, but were able to truly craft a life of meaning. And at this point, you were, you were a nun. And by that, I don't mean Sally Field flying or other <laughs> habit wearing kind. I mean, you, you were among the religiously unaffiliated, the nuns as they're called now in some popular parlance, but you, you were, this is a time when yeah. you kind of walked, you're, you're, not walked away, it's, it sounds too like normative or something, but I mean, you kind of, your journey took you to a really different place than that of childhood. Yeah, totally. And I, one of the things that I'm so fascinated by in the, the not the N-O-N-E-S, the nuns now, is that I'm aware um, certainly through our media space of how much spiritual curiosity and searching there is in that sphere and but I wasn't one of those right like I was really I was really deeply disinterested I I wouldn't I don't think I would have said I was atheist I wasn't even interested enough to, <laughs> to call myself atheist, right? Like, I didn't know what I thought. You're not even taking the survey. Like, yeah, like, I wasn't bye. taking the survey. <laughs> yeah, and, and I, I just thought that it was, that religion was irrelevant. And I, I thought there might be something to it. I wasn't, I wasn't dismissive or demeaning about it, but I could see no place where it really was relevant to the things that I was interested in, which was world affairs and, and, and also how people survived world affairs. You got there to Germany working, you were doing journalism in the New York Times? Yeah, I was a New York Times stringer. So that's, <laughs> so I was not, I didn't have a, I got paid if I worked and, uh, but I was very lucky because I was there in a year 
that there were all kinds of uh, extraordinary circumstances and news events. So the correspondents who were based in Bonn kept getting called away, and then I would get to jump in and actually do some reporting. And then you go to the State Department. So Berlin was a little island. West Berlin was an island, really. It was surrounded by East Germany. And the the American State Department there had all this special money from the German from the West German Bundestag because they were securing the city. And so so the the chief diplomat was able to kind of he said, you know, basically he liked who I knew. I was in touch with kind of the young generation. It, these were the early years of the Greens, but I I was I was in touch with that. I was in touch with a lot of and the you know the very nascent environmental movement that actually was also bubbling up in the east and there were these really interesting connections between east german activists and west german activists and so this dep- diplomat who was a german expert and a, a really stellar person he just he really he liked what i knew and what i was paying attention to and so he invited me to be a special assistant to him to help him be more in touch and so that was a dream job because i got to keep doing what i was doing but then i was actually able to just have a little bit of a little bit of a voice in terms of Policy. Now, you at the end of this period, you went to go write the great. Well, I was going to say American yeah. novel, but the great maybe expatriate. You don't know your, you know, uh, <laughs> my great you, novel. Your great, yeah, your great novel, the great international novel. Now, I've yeah. done my research. Okay, I know that you like Twenty Four and British thrillers and spy novels. <laughs> at some point, did you think, look, I could go CIA? <laughs> there might be something in me that might like that. I mean, I'm not comfortable with piano wires or other PPKs, but. <laughs> There is something about this international intrigue that's, you know. Yeah, you know, I knew because Berlin was just crawling with intelligence people from every every agency. So, I mean, I knew British and American and French and Russian and German spies, which all of that, like just about anything else in life, is much less romantic and intriguing when you see it up close. It, you know, it turns out it's just, just it's just people, <laughs> like John Kennedy, right? It's just people. So I think- you got tough standards, Chris. I mean, John <laughs> Kennedy. Uh, you know, I didn't flirt with him. I mean, all these international spies. And really, you know, one guy didn't floss. Yeah, <laughs> the no, other guy drinks Miller Lights. I was like, haven't you ever seen a James Bond film? I mean, people, Peshaw. I'm done. <laughs> I haven't talked about this stuff for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know it sounds funny, but I think though, because I was, I was such, I, th- I think actually the, the various intelligence agencies never quite knew, always kind of wondered who I was working for. So I have a, I got my Stasi file from the East German Secret Service after East Germany fell. And they were yeah, always. That's con- when I got my Stasi file. Too. <laughs> well, <laughs> we they were confused. That. We all they got that in the mail. <laughs> they could never figure out. They thought I was. First of all, they thought I was CIA, and then I thought they thought I was MI6. And I actually think I wasn't approached, and because I, people always were suspicious of where I stood on those things. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> so, do you want to say, like, exclusive? Where you're really CIA? Do you want exclusive right here? <laughs> well, I my, promise, my, I wasn't. My kids, my kids have done this with me Come too, on. Mom. It's just you and me now, Kristen. And they really want me to say yes, right? <laughs> they for your kids. Jeez. So selfish. So you go try to write, do some novel writing. Where'd you go? I went to this um, beautiful village that was very remote and hard to get to on the island of Mallorca, just as Mallorca was kind of getting discovered by tourists, but it really wasn't overrun by tourists at that point. It's and off it the was- coast of... 
it's this, it's off the coast of it's near uh, off the coast of Barcelona. One of the New York Times correspondents I worked with had had recommended it, and I had gone there on a vacation and met some lovely people, all expatriates. It was full of it was very international. It was full of Americans and Brits, and and then also the local people and a kind of way interesting way they mixed writers and painters and you know not necessarily good writers and painters, but people who were. <laughs> Managing to to live, set call, you know, just being writers and painters, and so I went back there thinking I would write this novel. It was it was such a beautiful place. It was just um, so peaceful, and I didn't I didn't know how badly I needed peaceful. So, but I so I had this very purposeful reason for going there. Right, I'm going to go. I'm going to write a novel now. And I just started to get quiet and quiet and quiet, and it was so amazing what that worked in me and how powerful that was. And eventually, I realized that's why I was there. And then you wound up in England, and kind of faith was rekindled. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think it started to be rekindled in Mallorca because I got quiet. And then I started doing something that I eventually realized was praying. And and then I had to—I just got curious about that, right? Like, I, if I was going to be praying, I needed to— think about what this meant and what I was doing. And and in England, um, I was living in the south of England, and this uh, is, there. there's a real uh, rich mystical tradition in that part of the world, right? Yeah, Julian of yeah. Norwich. Yeah. And the cloud of unknowing. And so that, that was so interesting. I mean, I, I don't even really know how I got how I how I wandered into that. That's not that's not a a part of Christian tradition that I'd been at all aware of when I was growing up. Well, tons of Southern Baptists have the cloud of unknowing. Yeah, right, right, right. right. You, <laughs> it's just not a good title high school youth for group, Southern Baptists. Yeah, right. After the eighth grade, you dropped out, and that's when they started reading that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that kind of really, but then that was just totally fascinating. It really pulled me in. Um, and then I just kept, I just kept going. Do you feel like that tradition, right? I mean, in, in Christian circle, although, I mean, this is, there's this dynamic in lots of traditions. There's kind of the apophatic or the negative theology, right? Where stuff is, is, is sort of the mystical, the transcendent by, you know, we, we know God by what, how distant and transcendent, or maybe not d- distant, but transcendent, you know, the, yeah. the, the unspeakable. And then there's the cataphag or the positive theology where you, you know, you kind of, you're always using words and rituals and, and, and that's where God is. Do you feel like, uh, I, I feel like people that like flourish, whatever that means in faith, if you start on the positive end without the negative end, it, it becomes like traditionalism and, and, and can get stagnant. And mm-hmm. is, is your journey like, because you love words, right? And, and you talk about that you have five touchstones in your book one is words so like is the life saver for the person that starts on the mystical the transcendent the cataphatic you know whatever you call it the great mystery is that eventually you got to live and be in the world and talk about it and figure out ways to at least bear witness to it that makes sense in the world around you yeah and i think something that surprised me that i connected with in the mystics in somebody like julian of norwich is how it was it was very wild and you know and strange you know not just mysterious but strange um and it was about beautiful words it was about words reaching kind of beyond themselves um uh but you know achieving beauty along the way and and it was about big ideas and all i like all of that but also there was something about really um about the about physicality, right? Like there's something very embodied, and um, you know, not just 
believing in the passion, you know, the crucifixion and the resurrection, but in but but deciding to take yourself into a mystical state where you experience it. And then knowing that, I mean, I you know, keep going with Jillian, you know, that she was like living during the Black Death. I mean, she was living in this moment of incredible physical suffering and catharsis. Um, and that, that, that's, that that's what she was speaking to and responding to um, and part of. I don't know, somehow it was that combination that was so, that was so riveting for me. Because it wasn't, it was, it was wild and mysterious, but it wasn't abstract. You know, it was really like addressing the world in its messiness too yeah i find the most real mysteries generally aren't abstract mm-hmm. I mean, almost, yeah they right. resist, they're allergic to abstraction right? yeah so you also you wind up like fast forward getting married or or, or you're spending time with the father of your children the guy who yeah so married. i was married when i was living in southern in the in england and that's how i ended up there and i i did kind of marry impulsively <laughs> To be honest, you know, so I was, and I think it was, I was in one of those when I was in Spain and, you know, I had basically just, I'd had this life and then I had walked out of my life and turned this dramatic corner and there was this total opening. And so, yeah, so in that opening, one of the things I did, it's not that I had just met Michael, but I had, you know, I'd met him earlier, but then we had ended our relationship. But then, you know, this relationship reappeared in that opening of my life. So I got married. Love is one of the words you, you you're, in your book. You you say there's you know you have five kind of themes that run throughout it, and then you describe why these things are important to you. And one is words. One is the body, which you just talked about a little bit. Another is love, and there's faith and hope. Yeah. So can I, can I ask you? You talk. You write beautifully about love. Like it, you you talk in your book about the ending of your marriage and that. The father of your children is still an important person. Yeah. Have you uh, have you found love again in that sense? I mean, love is complicated. And- yeah, I I have at this I've been quite a few years without that, and I did I did have one very kind of life giving relationship, but I really felt like I. I I I needed to be present to my kids. I think, you know, having a relationship when you have children is really complicated and it that just that wasn't right for me. And I also had this big job and it just it kind of ended in a very healthy way, you know, it just wasn't supposed to be forever. And then I pretty much have, you know, I I write about that in the book about it's not that I it's not that I said at that point, well, I'm not going to have a romantic life anymore. But I did say I need to be present to these kids, and that's what I, that's what I want to do. And I and I also just had I mean I have I have a big job, and so but I but I did start really investing in friendships and having people over for dinner, and you know letting that be part of my family life. And at some point, I I would wonder when I was going to fall in love again. And then at some point, I realized you know how very much love how much love I have in my life, and and how much I treasured that and really investing in friendships. And so, you know, I'm just about to take my son to college next week and then I won't have kids at home. It's not that I've taken a vow, you know, uh, I'm not I'm not monastic um, for the rest of my life or anything. But many other forms of love have been the, the right forms of love for me to be investing in for, for these years. There's a joke about, uh, like, it's the, you know, New England Academic Town Forum. It's about when does life begin? And the first is a Jesuit and he gets up you know, argues that life begins at conception. And the second is a kind of liberal, well-trained Presbyterian minister who says, hey, ecumenically, I respect my friend, we're colleagues, but, you know, I have to disagree. Life begins at birth. And then the Episcopal 
priest who was on the forum who looked like he had a flask and takes a few hits, kind of staggers up to the podium. I don't know what the hell you guys are talking about. Everyone in this room knows life begins when the kids leave home and the dog dies. <laughs> so you're you're just I mean you're 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 right in the sweet spot for Yeah. For- well, it doesn't it feels pretty confusing and not so sweet right now, but I I think it will feel sweet when Do you I feel get like used you're an it. intimidating person to date? Like like you're thinking, "Okay, so what would you do today?" <laughs> oh, I just talked with the Dalai Lama. Oh, yeah. Well, you know what? I uh, you know, I had to I had to get rid of the uh, sales manager at the party. <laughs> oh, I was grading students' papers or whatever, you know. Like, like, you, um, do you, you feel like it's uh, you, somebody's going to have to bring their A game to the conversation? <laughs> uh, you know, I, I write in the book about how much I value humor, and I think that that, that may be one of my first, uh, the top, top uh, priorities in friends and uh, potentially more than friends. We've amazing. got some really interesting <laughs> listeners and readers. You want to say quick turn ons, turn offs, <laughs> where they can find you? <laughs> No, no. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I want to give you the opportunity. I want to give you the chance. <laughs> Thank you. I feel like you're trying to contribute to me entering this new stage of my life, which hey, is looming ahead of me. I lo- I'm like I'm such a yenta. My wife and I have set several people up, and we enjoy. Okay, it. well, you you keep me in mind. I, I, totally I think will. I'm a bit older than you and your wife. I totally will. I totally, I totally will. You'd be surprised. How old. <laughs> but, uh, let's fast forward. You go to Yale Divinity School, which sounded like an amazing experience. Which our uh, readers and listeners can, they should read your book, Speaking of Faith. So they should read all your books. We're going to kick them off their subscription list if they don't. <laughs> you, you speak really eloquently about your own experience. And a lot of our readers are seminarians or, you know, and our listeners right. are seminarians or people that consider that kind of thing. So I, I just think it's a really good field guide to a kind mm, of... Thank you. And you it's interesting because you really navigate well some places where you can get lost. Like I love, you know, you talk a little bit about how you have these people that are learned in the main line and vibrant intellectually, but they don't pay attention, you know, to the sacred texts and things like yeah. that. And then you have yeah. these conservatives who love the text and you talk about your grandfather's scribbled notes, but then there's like, but what about like room for the ambiguity that, yeah. that's in the text and that it, it evokes attention to in our own lives? Yeah. yeah. I could just walk around with you if you want and summarize parts of your life and sell books. <laughs> like, all right, Chris has got to move on. She's got to move on here. How'd you start the radio show? Do you just go and, hey, I'm Chris the Tippett. I, you know, the, there's a Stasi file in me. Uh, I yeah. went to Yale Divinity School. Yeah, that school. was a real qualification. So I came out of Divinity School. I came out of seminary and I, I had gone there wanting to test the idea that I could be a person of faith, that I could take religion seriously in the world, and that that could involve my mind and I, that it could be relevant to all the complexity. And that was just confirmed in spades. And then I come out in the mid-90s. And it was just this moment of really just full of strident voices and religion re-emerging into the public sphere. But I actually think it was quite traumatizing, and I I actually think we can trace why there is this uh, huge drop in people who associate with uh, with traditions to to this period where the tra- where there was kind of a I would say it this way I mean media um, my fellow journalists you know colluded in this but there but religion in public just became kind of a caricature of itself and it was per- perpetuated by a few people but it was very powerful and toxic and so I was asking that question like how how can can this part of us be represented in more in its fullness and its richness and its relevance and it's the generative contribution I think faith and people of faith should make to public life and so that was so so I loved public radio and and I thought this this is where it could happen 
But I mean, nobody knew who I was, and I wasn't Krista Tippett, right? <laughs> like, in terms of what you know, what that means now, because I've said it on the radio. Cover letter, resume, Stasi file. I mean, how'd you do? Like, what did you? Did you just know? Yeah, something but I did radio? have that, but that resume didn't qualify me to do a public radio show about religion. So I, I mean, I had to kind of talk my way into this. And the thing, the thing that happened is that there were most people were skeptical. And there are still skeptics in public radio, but about your show, yeah, name names. <laughs> <laughs> there are programmers who just don't think this belongs on public radio. Really? Yeah. Why? They just don't think it it has a place on a news dial. I would also say that this dynamic that I'm talking about is something that has been bubbling in all kinds of media and in every newsroom. The way news. And journalism got defined for a long time, kind of bracketed this out. And so it's a very slow shift where journalism and news learn how to bracket this back in. So my, my project has been just, a, you know, kind of a microcosm of that. You say in the book, you, in one of the opening lines, you say that, that you've come to understand the, the culminative dialogue of your work as a kind of cartography of wisdom about our emerging world. Yeah. I, I want to run with the metaphor for a second. On your map, right? Let's say it's a relief map. Like, where mm. are the peaks and valleys? Like, what, how do you, what, yeah. what stands out on your map? Well, I'm, you know, what I might talk about is how different the map is than I imagined it to be when I first started. So there are the depths of tradition, and there are also neuroscientists. This field is so new, but it's one of the examples of disciplines and ways of knowing that are informing the questions that our traditions, that are the theologians previously were the ex, you know the the ones to pronounce on that you know we're learning things about our bodies and brains that actually help that that help make deeper sense of some of the things about ritual and virtues and how to live a good life and how to change ourselves, how to be more who we want to be. I mean, really practical questions about morality are being informed by science. So like, it's very, you know, so there's, and and physicists who are just opening up, not just informing this question of where we came from and our place in the cosmos, but also deepening our vocabulary of beauty and mystery in ways that are just so fascinating, whether they're religious or not. You know, I would also say this, in the 90s, when I when I when I was had this idea, when I was just taken with this idea that I had to I had to create this, or somebody had to create this. So much of the coverage of religion was coverage of politics, and I have. I, I, I think that is the least interesting place to see what is happening in religion. But I would say more and more, especially over the last years, I've interviewed more and more poets. Hmm. But I've also come to understand through talking to somebody like Walter Brueggemann that the prophets were always poets, right? That 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 form of political critique made use of disarming language. It, it had a different arsenal of um of tools than just electoral politics. So I just I feel like the map is populated by all these places I wouldn't have seen. And it's some that it's something that has emerged that that has been that is so kind of wonderful for me to look at now these years on. 
Is it sort of like zoning in beach towns? Like, you know, it, we like when I go to the shorts in Jersey and in, in South Jersey, they allow all these high rises and, mm. and, and, and big, like, you know, glitzy signs like that, you know, and then it, a lot of times in central North Jersey, they don't allow that stuff. And the towns just look like normal towns next to an ocean. Mm. It, it mm. maybe like, is maybe the wrong things are zoned into the system. <laughs> like, we're we're <laughs> right. so into this cartography metaphor. Yeah. All these Young people who were who would never have called themselves religious, who were definitely you know nuns, but who ended up gravitating towards churches as places where things were happening, where people were being cared for, and that they really wanted churches to act like churches, right? And they didn't always see that. So, so their critique of religion was not that the whole thing is absurd, but that it didn't live up to its own standards. Don't bait and switch me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like they wanted to really see Christians act like Christians. And they were they were drawn without without any kind of, you know, forethought to what that what that could be. So so, you know, that's also what's on the map. When you interview people, do you ever think like I'd like to be this person's friend? Like I mean when the interview ends, like are you just like this is a bummer. I wish I wish Yeah, no, actually that happens that happens a fair amount because because I so um steep myself in who somebody is before I interview them, you know? And then they feel very known. <laughs> yeah. So so it does happen quite a lot that, that at the end of the interviews we make expressions of how we'd like to meet each other in the flesh. And then and it doesn't happen a lot of times, but but it does. You know, there are people with whom with whom I have de- developed a friendship, and that's very special. Have there ever been interviews when you just think, like, gosh, when will this be over? This is not going the way I thought. Yeah, I mean, there have we work so hard to to be sure before we invite somebody to be on the show, you know, that they can really engage in this kind of conversation. But sometimes, what I would say the 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 most common thing that happens is that. Somebody just really can't walk this line in conversation that I'm interested in, which is which is what you do and who you are, you know, what you what you believe and how you live, and also being open to sharing the questions that are associated with that, the animating questions as well as the the answers. Yeah, you interviewed um, kind of Matthew Sanford, yeah, who is a paraplegic, yeah. Right? And at 13, right? Like he was, yeah. Uh, and he became a yoga instructor. Mm-hmm. And in the conversation, uh, and this is your, our, um, this is one of the things, by the way, let me just say an aside. Uh, like one of the things that's great about your book is on, if you get the deluxe Kindle version, uh, <laughs> it, you, you can actually play interviews. You like, get to hear their voices. I know. Yeah, I'm, so I'm so great. happy about that. I feel like the publicists, they only publicize the book and not the, yeah, that. Yeah, I, I just think it's Kindle. one of those things that, like, it's a, it, like, it's where things like that format allow a new art form. I mean, yeah. I, there's nothing like that. I mean, they have audiobooks and then there are, you know, electronics, but not something that's a fusion of that, which is just really wonderful. But he yeah. says that there's a thing in yoga called pranayama. It's yog- yogic breathing. You breathe in the yoga pose for the yeah. spaces. I believe this for the spaces you can't feel. Yeah. You don't just breathe for the bicep that you can really flex and your balance increases, your strength increases, your flexibility increases. Talk about it in terms of honoring your body, but don't make that a moral insight, you know, a responsibility of my body. And you interject the word grace and he's being gracious or, or grace. And he says, that boy, that boy, uh, well, he says that doesn't inspire me at all, the, the, yeah. the moral part. But then he says, yeah, grace. I like grace. Like, yeah. we, like you gave him a vocabulary to describe something 
that it has moral implications, but it's not moralistic. Yeah. Is there something in religion where the, the if the ethical isn't deeply connected to or driven by the existential, it can just become like a, a, another sort of, again, another like, I, I mean, it's funny, his 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 allergy to calling it moral. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, It's almost like the if the ethical doesn't flow from the existential, it just becomes a weapon or a program or an agenda. Um, or so, I, that's what I thought when I listened and read. Yeah, and I think one thing that has really gone wrong in, in American life is the way religious people get covered and interviewed by journalists and also the people who throw themselves out there to be covered and interviewed by journalists. But the moral beliefs and positions, the positions about morality get disconnected from ways of living and treating others. So on the one hand, you know, you're standing for a principle while your public persona may be you know, a, a principle that's supposed to be about goodness and love and grace, while your public persona may be overtly hateful, you know, demeaning to others. And so that that discredits, it discredits a word like moral and morality. Have you ever read Robert Capon? Mm, I don't think so. He's an Episcopal priest, really interesting guy. Wrote a great cookbook called the, the Supper of the Lamb. But he's a guy that a lot of our readers and listeners like, and I discovered through Mockingbird. And he has a couple sentences where, because I was thinking about what you said about grace and the sort of it, it, giving Matt Sanford, the, Matthew Sanford, the, the, the way to receive yeah, something. Yeah. He says, the Reformation was a time when men went blind, staggering drunk because they had discovered in the dusty basement of late medievalism, a whole cellar full of 1,500-year-old 200-proof grace, bottle after bottle of pure dissolute of scripture, mm-hmm. one sip of mm-hmm. which would convince anyone that God saves us single-handedly. The word of the gospel after all those centuries of trying to lift yourself into heaven by worrying about the perfection of your bootstraps suddenly turned out to be a flat announcement that the saved were home before they started. Mm-hmm. Grace has to be drunk straight, no water, no ice, and certainly no ginger ale, neither goodness nor badness. Not the flowers that bloom in the spring of super spirituality could be, be allowed to enter into the case. Mm, that's beautiful. What does grace mean to you? You use the word in your books, and obviously it, it's something that's touched your life because you seem to be an incredibly grateful and attentive person, which seem to me to be the fruits of grace. Like, how would you define a word you like know, that? that? It's it's like, it almost feels like something that any words I put around it will be inadequate. I mean, but I I would say some quality of it, that it is at one and the same time unmerited, but also connected to a kind of dance between effort and aspiration. I don't know. It's hard to talk about it as an, in the abstract, you know? When have you felt it? What have been graced moments in your life? Yeah, well, I mean, right now I'm really aware of the, my children and, you know, this strange dance of parenting somebody to adulthood, a new human being in the world. And I think, like many parents, I, you know, all along the way, you worry again and again about whether you're doing this right or that well and what you might have done differently. Um, and all of that is true, and yet it doesn't necessarily matter. Um, and, you know, and then on the one hand, I mean, you know, my children are, like, I guess they get older, they they become themselves. And so they, they do, they have their complexity. So I start to see, like, what these, these adults are going to struggle with, which will be their business and not mine. But I also just am so grateful for, like, what amazing people they are and that I, you know, that, like, on the one hand, I raise them, and on the other hand, who they are has 
is so separate from me, wonderfully separate, right? So mysterious and all their own. Mm. So that to me is kind of an example of grace. Who do you dream of interviewing that you're not sure you're going to get or you'd like to get? Not sure. I mean, who, like, who's, who's your dream interview right now that you were like, all right, if I had to hang the microphone up, I could do it after that. I used to have that list and par- partly I have, I have gotten some of those people like, like Desmond Tutu was somebody who I really wanted for a long time. And then I finally got him. I've actually gotten less focused on the people I already know about and more intrigued by how, you know, I know I will discover someone who I've never heard of and most people haven't heard of. And kind of my hope for the future or my hope for our world is based in this conviction I have that, you know, the things that are saving us right now are probably quiet and humble and they're not, you know, being greeted with great fanfare and (laughs) they're not in headlines because whoever those people are, they're just getting on with the work to be done. And, you know, there are new realities being incubated in small local spaces and that's exactly how new realities get incubated. So... These days, I less have my, like, you know, my wish list than, like, wow, I'm really, I'm so curious to see who, who I will discover, who I'll interview next year that I never would have thought of or known about until that moment. In your book, you say that contentment is not something that you've known much in your life. Yeah. Not something that you ever really knew you wanted. Yeah. Where, where are you at these days with contentment? Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of an intense, restless person, or at least I, at least that's, I don't know if I would, if these days I would say that I'm hardwired to be that way necessarily, but I think that's the, you know, that's the way I kind of got through my childhood and that's the, the person I, my life led me to be. But I don't want to, you know, I'm, I'm welcoming not, not necessarily giving in to those impulses. I mean, right now, I mean, right now is a little bit odd because I feel like I'm at this great juncture. So I have been, I have been in a in a much more contented place than I ever had before. Now I'm in this place where so much is shifting, and I know that in the next few years I'm going to be kind of recreating my life, and so that feels unsettled, not in a bad way, but I don't. I feel I've been really enjoying being settled, and so I think you know I like to th- I, I I will be settled again differently. So big changes are coming. Yeah. Is there a movie deal? Who's going to play? <laughs> No, there's not. <laughs> who would you want to no, play? Julia Roberts is not going to play me in the movie. No. That's who you want to play you, though. <laughs> no, I'm just saying, I I interviewed Elizabeth Gilbert this year. You know, Julia Roberts played her in the movie. But did you choose to be on Sunday mornings? No, I have resented it and regretted it a lot that we got kind of put in the church slot. But but this interesting thing has happened since we started podcasting that we have figured out that even though with a podcast, a podcast goes up on Thursdays, we found that most people still listen on Sundays. And these are not necessarily people who ever even knew that it was on public radio. So I actually think there's something about, I mean, I don't, I don't want it to just be on Sundays. And like in New York City, it's on Monday evenings. And I love that. And it's on a few places like that more and more. But I think Sunday is this contemplative time. Like even if people are completely disconnected from a community or tradition, there's something about that that remains. So I've made peace with this. I, I love that it's on Sundays. You I mean, love I, it. Well, it's funny because I think that most weeks I have to preach to a group of people. And, you know, there's always a difference between the sermon and the preaching. You know, what yeah. you've got and what, yeah. how it comes off. And, you know, I remember distinctly... Um, 
when you uh, you interviewed Vegan Gorian around yeah. time a couple of years ago. And I just remember, um, I remember you talking with him and him telling the story of these turtles. Yeah. They come out of yeah. his garden every year. And it's like the new Adam and Eve kind of coming. It's so beautiful, yeah. And Oh, I think every Easter since then, mm. I've listened to that. Mm. Um, wow. I'm sure for a lot of people who like have to lead religious services on the weekend, and also people that go to faith communities where, you know, they're there for all sorts of reasons, and they just know it's not going to be all that inspiring, but it's good for their kids or their spouse likes it. Or, I mean, I think you probably have a sort of, you're, you're a bomb in Gilead. Or that you've been that you've been that for me on many occasions. Well, it's that's interesting because I I mean I, first of all I love that thank you I I have worried about the fact that people who are preaching you know are I feel like are going to be thinking about their sermon. I mean, it, it's on so early on Sunday mornings that it's not necessarily impediment to people who are going to church. But but I've heard that a lot, and I I I mean, you know, my my former husband was an Episco- is an Episcopal priest. I don't know if I, I don't know if that's in the book, but so I know I I know how how challenging it is to hold all those things together. And so it makes me really happy when people who are preaching say that it's just something that they can get something out of and get a little bit nourished. Well, yeah, it's, I mean, because conversation, graced conversation is inspiring and enc- mm. like encur- it, it's encouraging. It's ideally mm. what you're hoping that, you know, you're hoping that the I, it moments in the world get transformed more into I, thou moments and, yeah. and, and something that, you know, you remind people in a way that's done well, that this is possible. Yeah. Thank you. You're making me happy. Uh, I, you know, it's just so awkward because I could talk to you all day and I don't want to <laughs> take all your time, but I, I just really appreciate you doing this and thank you and all our listeners and readers becoming wise in inquiry into the mystery of living and get the deluxe version. Get two, one for a friend. <laughs> Give it away. Thank you, Scott. Thank you so much. It's been great. But it lifts me up when we are walking anywhere. Wow, first up, you just heard a marathon interview with Krista Tippett, who's a lovely person. And this might feel artificially rushed because David Zoll is with us, the animating force of the Zeitgeist. Yep, I'm here. I'm wearing my brand new Guns N' Roses fan club t-shirt, The Night Train. I'm on it, and that's what we're recording at night, so it kind of makes sense. And he is dying to speed this recording up, so he can see Michael Phelps win maybe the gold or silver. It's a real it's a real nail-biter. Gold, <laughs> silver. Gold, silver. So you're a big sports fan, as I understand, David, and we got to push this thing along because, I mean, you write a lot about sports on the podcast. You know, you know, you're a sports guy, so we got to move it on. That's very funny. Yeah, I pre- that the great sarcasm. It, that's called manners, where Sarah comes from. Sarah Condit. <laughs> hey, Houston, all the way from Houston. How's the weather? It's terrible. This is the time of year where I have to remind myself that when we lived in New York, we had weeks. We just couldn't leave the house because of the snow. Because right now, we cannot leave the house because it's 100 degrees outside plus every day. It is hot. If I were going to make the movie The Martian, I would do it with you, not Matt Damon. Because I feel like you could be like, it's hot. It's terrible. I'm, I'm like making excrement to like grow potatoes. But you know what? I'm still engaging. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's my gift from so, God. All right. 
So I'm wearing a an indescript polo. It's a light floral pattern. And the jeans I bought to go to the Episco Disco in New York City, which, by the way, 10th anniversary coming. And if you're not going to the conference, I don't know what you're doing with your time. When is it? April 20th. No. Nope. April 27th. <laughs> 7th. April 20th. Seven to the 29th. It's a great conference in all seriousness. And I'm not serious very often, but there's lots of intellectual stimulation, but it doesn't feel like you're going there to load up on the new thing. I mean, you do find some new things and sometimes you find yourself in the grace of God and... It sounds awful, like, but I was a, I, I, I sound shameless as a self promoter, but I was a client, like Hair Club for Men, before I was on this end of the organization. And I, I feel like my experience is not unique. So, that being said, we've all talked about what we're wearing. So, just let's talk fashion. Well, we actually, I don't think we have talked yet about what Sarah's wearing. Sarah, we'll, would you like we'll to? get there. We'll get there. We have a piece. Okay. Wait, we'll I get you there. Didn't say Mexican. Oh, no, no, no. We'll get there. Well, okay. Um, in fashion, we, we just missed out on this last week, but people in the know, uh, the tastemakers out there are aware that the Wall Street Journal did a rare fashion article. I guess it's not that rare, uh, in which, um, Nicole Hong, I believe her name is, uh, it, it did an article all about cargo shorts and basically how nice cargo shorts you're sleeping on the couch, I believe was the, uh, name of the article and it it was sort of a laundry list of um female complaints about uh their guys wearing cargo shorts and the cargo short kind of being seen as the worst possible thing a man can wear tim gunn is quoted as saying you know it's the least fashionable item in his closet how you know of course, it's in there, so he clearly owns a pair. One of the ladies is quoted as saying, there were so many good things about the 90s. Cargo shorts were not one of them. Judd Apatow, our, you know, the great uh, writer-director of films and freaks and geeks and whatnot, he uh, tweeted and says, you, know, you just don't understand us. The comfort, the drawstring, the pockets, the drawstring. We can pretend we're not <laughs> fat. And uh, it set off this very tongue-in-cheek debate that rage uh, uh, the cargo short wars i mean where do you guys stand on the cargo short wars uh so when josh and i started dating 11 years ago he only wore cargo shorts like on dates and stuff and um and i hated them then i mean that was 10 years ago i think his mom bought all of them for him in old navy so he was 28 at that point and i remember (laughs) thinking then like i'm gonna get him out of those cargo shorts and he still has those cargo shorts in our closet upstairs. And he's he's a little bit more careful about where he dons them. But um, uh-huh. if we're out in the hood, man, and we're taking a walk, like he's in his dad cargo shorts. So, yeah, I've kind of so you've made your you've made your feelings known, though. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. But, you know, I mean, I <laughs> have my own whole weird set of things I call yoga pants that he just deals with. So, you know, yeah, it's well, I mean, it, fe- it seems, seems like it's really uh, men are, it turns out are really attached to their cargo shorts like that. This created, I, I think it was really, everyone's been so bummed out by the news and the election cycle has been so just over the top in terms of the incendiary uh, content that people have been really excited for the Olympics and something like cargo shorts feels like, you know, just a breath of fresh air. 
But um, Scott, what, what, what's what's your sense? I'm torn. I, I think I've owned two pairs of cargo shorts in my life. That's impressive. And I've never, only two? And I've, well, one were white linen, and I felt like they were good golf Those shorts. Those don't count, my friend. They're white linen? And the other were like brown, traditional. I just threw them out. I, I viewed them as golf shorts on a hot day. Mm-hmm. I, I think that, I, and I'm a person that does not wear seersucker before Memorial Day or after Labor Day. Although occasionally I will be an iconoclast and do it after Labor Day with jeans or something while it's still warm. I have a tuxedo I bought from a high-end thrift store. By high-end, I mean in a rich neighborhood where people get rid of clothes because they outgrow them because they're gaining weight and living good. Not, you know, so like it, I, it was the tuxedo I was married in. I got it in my twenties. I still wear it to occasions. And I always tell my female friends, never date a guy that doesn't own a tuxedo. That's like trying to be with a Superman who doesn't have a cape. <laughs> so that's line. one half of me. Yeah. The other part of me, maybe this is Saima used this at Picada or Saima used this fashionista and non and whatever the other Latin thing would be. <laughs> Fashion sensibility should be self-expression, not limitation. So on some level, I think like, I don't know, maybe, uh, I don't know. I think cargo shorts are in general a bad idea. And I, I'm sad to say I do not have the white linen ones. And let me also say, I recently played, I play golf about twice a year. And no, once a year, actually. And this year I played and it was 98 degrees. And I showed up in black linen pants and a black golf shirt because I don't play golf in short because it just doesn't seem uh, cultured or couth. And I did drive for the uh, for the golf fans. I did drive two par fours and I three putted one of them. <laughs> so there we go. All right. So Sarah, some people would argue that your Mexican Cracker Barrel, and I'm not being racist or diminishing Cracker Barrel. By the way. <laughs> I ate a Cracker Barrel for the first time like a year ago for breakfast. OMG. I was like, hey, Kitch Arcana. This is, I could have spent days in this. Oh, yeah. Days. Super I just fun. kept eating and, and looking. So some people would say that the Mexican Cracker Barrel fusion whatever that is a version of the cargo shorts tell us why it's not yeah no i completely agree with you it is which is why i'm married to a man who does not own a tux but does own several pairs of cargo shorts because we pair off together just interrupt let let me just interrupt you because i think that and i'll do it in the simon voice i think your sense of style is lovely and i really mean that i have never seen you look that i appreciate that yeah um no we're we're bringing this up. We're talking about this this piece from the establishment called uh, Toddler Grandma Style, the fashion approach that will set you free. Um, it's just a lot of fun to read. Uh, she she brings up this, this fashion style that sort of melds together what elderly women, the freedom elderly women have in their, in their uh, uh, fashion choices, along with the way that little toddler girls just will wear the most random things together. And she says here, I first heard the phrase toddler grandmother on an episode of the Fox series Glee in 2009. The diva high schooler Rachel, played by Leah Michelle, is described as dressing like a toddler and a grandmother at the same time. What that means is Rachel wears flats and Mary Janes, tights and knee socks, pastel Harlequin print polyester dresses with Peter Pan collars, button-up cardigans, and headbands. Yeah, I, I, I thought she was just so funny and clever. And, and sort of her point is that women dress all too often for men. You know, when we 
think about what we're going to wear and how we're going to present ourselves. It's, it's so often it's not about what gives us joy. So, which is a great point. It's a point that's been made over and over again. I loved it because I could kind of identify with the style a little bit. I'm uh, wearing tonight in honor of this piece. What I grew up, all the women in my family, especially once they hit a certain age, wear what we called Mexican dresses. And uh, I've learned since moving to Texas that the appropriate thing to call them, really, really white people call them this because they're trying to be appropriate, is Pueblo dresses, but Mexican people call them Mexican dresses. But um, anyway, I'm wearing a very hot pink one tonight with flowers all over. It sort of looks like a moo-moo. And it definitely goes along with this toddler grandma style. I don't. I love this concept that women are finding more freedom in what they can wear. I think, uh, I think that's new, maybe, um, that we don't feel as constrained by what's work appropriate. I mean, she talks about how she, for the longest time, felt that being an adult meant that you carried around a briefcase with a bunch of bills in it that were stamped paid. And now it can mean a lot of different things. So I thought it was fun. Do you guys sport the toddler grandmother? Do your wives into that? My wife uh, has often been accused of having a fashion sense of like a pilgrim. She says <laughs> I, I get accused of being like a nun pilgrim by like her sister and, and her, her mother and stuff. Sometimes that would be where her instincts would take her. And I always think that's really funny. I mean, I thought it was a, a very clever piece. I I mean, part of me, you know, I, I it as a man, you, you take it so for granted the way that women dress and you, you kind of wish that men had the same latitude actually in terms of just the breadth of stuff that they wear. You know, for men, it's like, are you wearing a, a black suit or a gray suit or a blue suit? And yes, the suit is a beautiful thing and there's plenty of different, there's all sorts of, uh, you know, variations, but I always, it's like, it's like cars. Why are you look at the 1950s and everyone's driving cars that have all sorts of things jutting out of them and three tones and all sorts of cool things. And today, basically, all cars look the same and they're all the same five shades of, of gray, white, and black and, uh, and sort of champagne or whatever it's called. And I always, I, I think that we've, we're losing a sort of creativity across the board in that direction. And it's almost unconscious, but I, that, that this toddler grandmother thing, I, I really do like it. I also, I also think it's not just, uh, escaping the male gaze. In fact, it's, uh, she's, um, She's reclaiming modesty. I know that there's lots of women that dress for men. In my experience, women dress women dress for women. Like at least once they're maybe the once they're married. I don't know. But. I think that's really accurate. Yeah. When I started my first job as a clergy person, you know, I was in hospital ministry. I worked with all male priests, and they all wore. Um, it was all black. They all wore all black with a collar, and. I've ne- I didn't grow up in a household where women wore black. My grandmother never, she always wore a lot of color and she was hugely influential in, in how I choose what I wear. And so pretty quickly I started to pull in more and more color, which I actually got some pushback for, which is very interesting. I got sat down mm. and, you know, told that they didn't want me in Hillary Clinton pantsuits. That's a direct quote. <laughs> and so with my next job at a church, I was pretty pretty anxious and St. Martin's is a very high powered place about how I was going to dress there and I knew it was mostly male priests on staff and so when the rector when Russ Levinson interviewed me I was 37 weeks pregnant and I thought okay I'm going to wear exactly what I would wear to work to this interview because I'm not dealing with another like here's what you need to wear thing so 
I have on I have gold lame loafers on because they're the only shoes that fit. I had um purple pants, like light purple pants, because they were maternity pants. I had this crazy colored cardigan. I mean, it's kind of the grandma toddler thing in these giant purple earrings. Like I must have looked like I, I mean like a giant flower threw up in his office. And then he offered me the job. And I thought, okay. I mean, it was this actually really freeing thing. I was like, okay, I can totally be myself here. I can totally wear what I want and be who I am. And um, yeah, sometimes I actually feel bad for all the dudes on, you know, on the clergy hall who are in their like black, you know, if they're mixing it up, they're in some pinstripes, but like they don't have the, they can't, they can't do all the color I can do. So anyway. If only a cigar was just a cigar. (laughs) (laughs) If only we would stop talking about fashion. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Can't stop talking yeah, I remember it's funny because as you guys were talking, I was thinking, no, I, I, I don't feel most the way you're talking. You guys are talking. <laughs> like, I, uh, I feel like I have lots of options and I feel like part of, um, it's this strange, like Barbara King solver, like why I do the seersucker thing. And I don't live this way. I'm a total hypocrite. I don't do it with food or things. But part of the seersucker thing, it, it, it gives me a freedom. It's like liturgical seasons, why I like colors and things like that. And even though our church doesn't do vestments and things like that, but we, we, we keep the church here. I remember like 2000, um, when did uh, Alexander McQueen died and t- committed suicide in 2011? Yeah. I sat in the heat like a couple days before that exhibit closed and sat for hours and like was tweeting with people that were, you know, were in line and people that were like, what's the line like? And I love the exhibit. And I just found that the, uh, the opening paragraph, uh, and this is by Holland Cutter, which was written in 2011. It's a great we can link to it uh, in another weekend, but it's uh, the title is D- Designer's Dramatist and Tales He Left Behind. And the opening paragraph is a hairstylist friend of mine used to place leather bondage gear in her downtown shop window to scare off what she called the wrong element, meaning anyone wanting a nice wash and trim. She wanted to be sure that if you sat in her chair, you were ready to accept whatever look she decided <laughs> on for you because it would change the way you saw yourself in the world. That was the deal. And again, uh, David, you have said invisibilia, which should be called NPR's grace and practice, but then a whole show and do the clothes make the person. Mm-hmm. There's a mysterious relationship between how we adorn ourselves, at least east of Eden, and who we are. And, and, and not one that can be prescriptive and probably can only be described after the fact. But it's interesting that the first act of idolatry, some people would argue, mm-hmm. is the fig leaves in the nakedness. Because if idolatry is meeting a need with creation that only the creator can meet, can meet, then that's it. And then what does God do in the moment? He offers skins, which is probably the proper sacrifice. So that being said, in all mm-hmm. honesty, I will still never wear a seersucker with jeans later than like November. Rolls are rolls. <laughs> friendship yeah the nature of friendship i felt like uh i got some inspiration this week so that a random article that someone sent me from 
the New York Times, uh, I, I think, um, are your friends, are like, uh, do your friends actually like you by Kate Murphy? This article that, um, uh, reported on some recent, very kind of disconcerting research that, uh, um, only half of perceived friendships are mutual. That, um, you know, that people that you think are your friends don't necessarily say, think that about you. And that it's very common, in fact. And I, I, anyway, this research was, was actually her, uh, her diving board into, uh, kind of a, a longer meditation about friendship. And, um, you know, that friendship is changing. You know, you hear about it in Christian context these days, spiritual friendship and whatnot. I, that never really makes much sense to me. Although I, 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 I laud it, um, as a concept. Uh, but she says that, you know, what do we, in today, friend is used as a verb for the first time ever. And that social inclusion and exclusion are as easy as a swipe or a tap on a smartphone screen. And that we see with like, you know, uh, she mentions Taylor Swift and Drake that you, you see a lot of friendships that are clearly strategic. Um, which seems to run uh, against the grain of how friendship has always been understood. She says it's easier. Uh, this is one of the professors that they quote from Princeton, Alexander Damas says it's easier to say what friendship is not. And, for, and, f- and first and foremost, it is not instrumental. It is not a means to obtain higher status, wrangle, uh, wrangle an invitation to someone's vacation home or simply escape your own boredom. Friendship is more like beauty or art, which kindles something deep within us and is appreciated for its own sake. That treating friends invest uh, as like investments or commodities is anathema to the whole idea of friendship. And that friendship really is like kind of the ability to, to like someone so much you can spend time in each other's company really doing nothing. But today we're so fixated on efficiency that we, our friendships become really stepping stones to some new status. And, uh, you know, for, to, to my ears, it sounded like the cult of productivity, but then it's also, you know, people have always used one another to, you know, climb. Networking has always been something people do before, long before that term was used. Uh, we, we climb ladders by who we, you know, social climbing has always been talked about. But I, for me, it was, it was more, uh, interesting as to how this relates to the fact that we call Jesus the friend of sinners. And, um, you know, a lot of times friendship with Jesus can be, it, it can become super anthropomorphic and kind of, you know, creepy. Um, especially when you think about it in terms of reciprocity. But, um, you know, the truth is we spend time with our friends because we want to, not because we have to, and are, or are told to do so. And that, Jesus is the friend of sinners, but that doesn't mean that sinners are the friends of Jesus, because uh, he's not just our friend. He's our God. He's our our um, savior. He is, in fact, the uh, washer of feet. Are you guys my friends? Are you guys my yes, friends? Yes, we're your friends. You are. Although when I read this, I was like, oh my gosh, who are those people in my life that I think I'm friends with that I'm not friends with? And then my brain jumped to this. So you know how David's not on Facebook and Scott doesn't participate in it nearly as much as I unnecessarily do, but you know how on face I feel like that. I feel like I participate, I, and you're one of the. I feel like I throw you a lot of likes, and I'm not. A, I don't oh, I know because I see them and I appreciate them, my <laughs> friend. But there, you know, how there are those those uh, quizzes you can take, and and it's not even really quiz that some weird algorithm will like read everything on your Facebook and then spit back like results yeah Who your friend, best and friend so is. there was this th- please say it was me okay please so there was this please one was that was please like it, was it would read your messages like you did all the stuff and i'm like totally let's do it and it was like so the three things were um, who is your, cause it was for teenagers. 
<laughs> so it was who's who's your bo- who's your boyfriend who's your best friend and then who who do you wish you were friends with okay so boyfriend was my husband thank god right and then best friend was my mom which is you know read that what you will and then the person who hmm. like i wish i was friends with but maybe wasn't was very accurate and it was disturbing like it was somebody who i think is so cool and like i hope she thinks i'm her friend but like i don't know if she does you know i know oh, no. so when i read this i was like she's one of those was it lindy my wife <laughs> this was is it lindy? lindy it's like the dark side of smart <laughs> yeah. technology it's telling you too yeah. much it's telling yeah. you too so, much it was very for me it was very redemptive your piece david that it ended on, on talking about jesus is a friend of sinners because um, I, I needed that word spoken over me after having the anxiety about, okay, how many people in my life? You know, when I read this, I thought, I thought about our friend Ron who committed suicide this spring and we talked about Ron on the podcast because we thought mm. about those people. You know, we talked a lot when Ron died about those people in our life that we, that we think we're friends with, but that we wish we were maybe better friends with. And, um, and and are those people cared for enough and are they surrounded by people that maybe they need to be better friends with so yeah this brought up a lot for being such a you know kind of a a short thing it um it hit me in a lot of different ways so i'm very grateful david me too well thank you i'm grateful for you guys my friends what is a friend aristotle asks a single soul dwelling in two bodies Mm. so there's this is my you know dude i'm becoming the person i hate Uh, But when I read your piece and read the uh, adjoining New York Times article, that took me back to Aristotle. Because for Aristotle, like he, you know, gosh, there was a great lecture I heard once that said when Aristotle was born, if you looked at it objectively, it's like there are people from another planet that just said, "Hey, the human race needs a little more forward movement. Let's just give them Aristotle." (laughs) But Aristotle, I mean, he's you know, he he just did everything you could do at his time. And he had a, a, a you know, a, a, a kind of, um, what does one call it, topology about friendship. He said, the first friendship you have is for utility, right? And it's like, hey, you're friends with the person that runs the farmer's market, that you love the organic hot sauce, or the guy that's the starter and on the golf course that gives you the time, you know, bumps you up if there's a cancellation. And you actually have some rapport, but there's, you're using each other. It's not an I, thou, it's not it. So, and then it easily, if you find a better golf course or better farmer's market, that thing, you know, you know, you're not going to go to their kid's bar mitzvah or, you know, anything that's inconvenient. You might go to their kid's wedding if it's open bar with really good food and you perchance get an invite. The second type of friendship is the one based on pleasure. Uh, where you really are drawn to each, something in each other that's admirable, that is beyond utility. Uh, but quickly, if that thing ends, if they get scarred, or if you're good at golf together, and, and there's really something beautiful, the aesthetics, or play music together, and the person can't do it anymore, you're just done. Uh, and the last friendship for Aristotle is pursuit of the good. And there's something that, you know, and for him, it's objective. I mean, the goodness of virtue. And, and it, for him, it in, encloses the other two because if you have the highest form of friendship, which is the good, you also are pleased in one another and you also will help one another in utility. <laughs> like you'll actually not all the time, but you'll help on a pipe burst at least every other year or something like that. So uh yeah, you think about like the text in Genesis, you know, where Abraham is called a friend of God and God's what if the divine project is to have friends? <laughs> 
<laughs> you think about like, you know, the picture of the Trinity before creation. And it, it, have you ever had the perfect moment when there's the perfect party? And maybe, maybe there was one person that wasn't there. And now in the age of cell phones, you text them. But you're way more concerned that the wrong person comes in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it seems like God is obsessed with throwing the best party, inviting all the wrong people whom he is destined and we are destined to be friends with. So, friends of God and friended by God. And David, thank you for writing that piece. It was beautiful. Wow, and, a great reflection. And I think you are both people I count as friends, even though we only see each other a couple times a year, even though I call you guys all the time, because I'm that friend with nothing to say. Love like you for day. it. I don't have anything. I don't have anything to say. Sorry. <laughs> I got nothing to say. A friendly conversation comes to an end, and so does another mocking cast, and I will see you next week, my friends, and call you 19 times before then. <laughs> Bye. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening to the Mocking Cast. As always, you can find any of the content we reference on our website, mbird.com. If you like what you heard, please drop by iTunes and give us a rating, maybe even write a review, hopefully a positive one, and pass it on to a friend or share it on social media. We exist because of the generosity and enthusiasm of you, our listeners. So for that, you have our thanks. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you next week.